Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, as well as insights in how to navigate the capital markets. What you'll hear in these interviews may very well change the course of your career, your company, and your life. And before we get started, I want to share with you one of the services our business, Creative Return, provides. Video is the most powerful and versatile tool for you to engage new investors and help convert them into shareholders. But it needs to be done with a strategy. Before you invest money into video production, we should talk. I will personally talk you through the finer points and strategies for optimizing your investment into marketing and investor videos. This is important because without it, all you will get is an expensive motion picture. You can connect with us at creativereturn.ca slash video. That's creativereturn.ca slash video. Now, on with the show. Today, we're here with Jacob Komenik, who is a partner of Woodbridge International, where they focus on helping clients sell their businesses. And specifically, Jacob's role there is taking them through the closing process, which you know, I think that can be strenuous at times. What I think is interesting is you guys focus on companies between five and 150 million in revenue. And I think that's a really dynamic space right now. So I'm looking forward to hearing about that. But I'm also interested and looking forward to hearing more about your experience working overseas with Goldman Sachs, both in Taiwan and Tokyo, if, if I'm not mistaken. So with that, Jacob, the best place for us to start is with an introduction from yourself. So I'll hand it over to you. Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, as you said, Corey, I'm at Woodbridge now the past couple of years. I'm a partner on the, the deal execution team, the closing team, as we call it. Unlike a lot of other bankers or M&A advisors, you know, we, we do separate our roles at Woodbridge. We have our business development team bringing in new clients. We have our marketing team going out, finding as many potential buyers as possible. And then the closing team who comes in more actively once we start getting those buyers in the room, having the conversations, and then uh, signing LOIs and driving things to close. We don't like to work on deals. We like to close deals. So that's why we call it the closing team. And as you said, uh, I, I started my career with Goldman Sachs out in Tokyo. I was in Japan for just about 10 years with Goldman on the sales trading team, the, uh, the shares execution team. And then I moved over to Taiwan to run the, uh, the execution team there in Taipei for about three years, three and a half over the, the course of the pandemic and, you know, interesting time to, to be there. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to be joining you here today. There's going to be a lot of um, areas I want to touch on already, but let's start a bit with Woodbridge and what you're doing there. I'm curious to know if you did it at a high level, where's the market at and what are buyers going through? And then I want to get in later in our conversation about some of the tactics that, that buyers should be aware of. But Where's the market at right now? What's happening? Sure. Yeah, I mean, last year was our best year ever. Uh, we closed 32 deals. It was active throughout the year. It was a very, I think, interest rates just starting to rise. A lot of people wanted to lock in uh, their investments at lower rates. This year has been definitely a bit more touch and go. I remember I was at a CG event, the Association for Corporate Growth, down in Atlanta in February. And everyone gave their forecast for the year that it was going to be bumpy for the first half, and then the second half would come on. It's taken a little bit longer. The second half uh, at the beginning was still a little slow, but now this fourth quarter has been super active. I think it's interesting, right? Rates are higher now than they were at the beginning of the year, but it's not really the rates that are driving things as much as the clarity in the market. I think at the beginning of the year with the banking crisis, you know, SVB and, and the rest, there was just a lot of hesitancy to deploy capital at all. Mm -hmm. The banks were reticent. They, they were worried. They were scared. And, and now we're starting to see things at a point where people are feeling more comfortable. Okay, this is rates are elevated. They're where they are, but, but we at least feel like we have our footing again. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's actually come on quite strongly this month of October. I'm wearing green right now. We wear green uh, when we close deals. We close two deals today. Good stuff. So, 
Yeah, October is set to be uh, the best month in our history. No kidding. Okay. Wow. Good stuff. Interesting you say that. You know, the first part of the year for us, even up here in Canada, in the capital markets where, where we work, it was slow. It was very, it, there were trying times. And uh, just recently, the floodgates have opened. And it's like, what is happening here? So, I mean, let's, let's run with it while we can. Uh, it's certainly, we've got a lot of interesting things going. I always like to to think about how, do you ever remember long-term capital management? The story of what happened there. And, and it was like, you know, they got, this is this for context for our listeners and our viewers. It was a, a hedge fund, if I'm not mistaken, in 2000 that got caught on the wrong side of a trade against the Russian ruble. And it had the, the effect of, of potentially seriously destabilizing the US dollar and the US banking system. And it was a massive deal. But now it feels like these things happen almost weekly and it's like irrelevant. So I share that perhaps to, to hear your input on that, about how that impacts your business. Uh, you know, SVB is, is an example there where, hey, we were a little scared, but you know what? Just kept on rolling on. So what's your take on that? What are your, what are your thoughts about all that? Yeah, it's funny. I was actually at another ACG event the week after Credit Suisse went under. And it was almost like everyone was purposefully ignoring it. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a kind of a strange environment. On the one hand, at any point in the past four or five years, if someone told you Credit Suisse went under, you, you wouldn't have been surprised. It had been teetering for some time. So I think part of it was an expectation that this could have always happened. And part of it, yeah, I think you're right. We've gotten to a point now where, where the markets seem to have gotten their heads around these types of crises. It doesn't tend to um, devolve in the way that, that contagion spreads all the way down to, mm-hmm. I mean, part of it's, you know, good standing from the uh, the central banks. You know, it's funny also to bring up LTCM because it's it's one of the types of examples of, of you know, picking pennies up in front of steamrollers where, yeah, you know, arbitrage opportunity to, to get these things. We, it's something we advise our clients around as well. It's like, if, if you're going to be taking these risks when you're selling your business and, and there's an, an offer out there and you're trying to, to increase the valuation by just a, a fraction, a hair, and you're, you're willing to push off clothes a month to make you know, some kind of gains on a tax treatment or something, you risk the whole deal falling apart by pushing mm-hmm. What a great analogy, picking up pennies in front of steamrollers and, you know, over a few weeks of, of difference to try to capitalize on a bit more value. So can you expand on that? Where do you see clients getting into this? Because I'm sure there's a lot of stress and, and a lot of money at stake. But and that's where yeah, it's, um, it's particularly pertinent right now because the deals that we're signing up under LOI at this point in the year oftentimes will have a close date of around December 31st, around the year end. And so you see a lot of sellers saying, well, why don't we push it off a month, push it off a week, get it, get it into January so that we can have a tax treatment and I can pay taxes in, in 2025. You know? mm-hmm. And yeah, you can, you can get a 5% CD, whatever, but the amount of money that you're going to make off of that is not really worth the amount of risk that even a week's difference. We had a client who pushed off a close for a week for a different type of, type of tax treatment last year. They had a fire in that week caused tremendous damage in their factory. The deal, I think they lost another $5 million off the top of that deal. Ultimately, we, we scrapped it with the buyer we had and found a new buyer. We eventually got it done, but at a lower valuation. So wow. you just never know. And it's something we always say is time kills deals, time and surprises kill deals in particular. So yeah. you leave yourself open to this. If, if you push things off, it's not, it's never worth it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. What other things like take the listeners through selling process. And I think it's, it's uh, for those who perhaps are even just interested in buying a business, even at a lower valuation, all the way up to, to those who work in the lower mid market and so on. Walk us through that buying process. And, and if you can flag any of the issues you see companies running into or owners and managers. Look, I think for, for us at Woodbridge, we do things a little bit different than the rest of the industry. A lot of business brokers out there, a lot of the M&A advisors will go to their network, go to people they know. That's a very small net. We go to a, a much bigger net. So 
being that we have these different departments looking at different parts of the selling process. When we bring the client in, the business development team goes, finds a, a new client. We get them uh, all signed up. We get our marketing materials ready. We actually get a video put together to go with our uh, confidential information memorandum, the SIM, as we call it. That video really, I mean, it tells a, a million words. If a picture tells a thousand yeah, words, yeah. a video tells a million words, right? So having all of that into that marketing effort and then having a team dedicated to the marketing process to find as many potential buyers as possible, not just the people we know, the people that they know, but the people none of us know. And I think it's the statistic that we have something around 85, 95% of the deals that we execute are with buyers that neither party knew each other. Okay. Knew that the other party existed for that. Wow. That's the way that you create a really robust auction. And it's that robust auction that's going to tell you the market value of your company. And so gotcha. your other question, what is what are the biggest hurdles? The biggest hurdle always is, is value expectations. Having a, a set number in mind going in, it can often work against you. We see oftentimes people pushing for something that's just slightly out of reach. We've gotten these bids and, and if only we could get up another $500,000, we'd have a deal. It's like, look, that's not where the market is telling you the value of your company worth right now. And if you have 20, 30 bids, we can say with some confidence that that, that is what the market is, is saying. And it's not us, Woodbridge, coming up with a number out of the air. It's, it's really the market. And having worked in, in equities and in public markets, it's, it's kind of similar. You know, you have valuations here being based off of, generally speaking, 12 months of trailing EBITDA. So what's the EBITDA over the, the last one year? That's then calculated with a multiple. Maybe there's some information about CapEx expectations or something like that that could factor in addbacks for things that are non-recurring types of expenses. All this will play in, but again, a multiple off of that trailing 12-month EBITDA is the standard for how a company is valued. Hmm. And so those values go up and down, the multiples go up and down, differ by industry, differ by the way that contracts are, are sorted. If you have more long-term contracts, you're gonna get a higher multiple, but ultimately you're gonna maximize your value when you have the most possible buyers in there, the biggest, most robust auction process. And that's what we try to do a now let's let's talk about some of these levers to valuation. And just on a side, we've completely veered off any of the questions here, but that's <laughs> perfect. This is what I like to do. So when you have a business and and let's maybe not give it a specific industry, but generally there's a multiple you start from. Let's say it's you know five times EBITDA. You pointed out a lever being the contracts. How is that company secured or structured their contracts in the short term, the long term? How much is you know is sixty percent allocated to one client? Yeah. What are the other levers that you look at that that can inch that um, multiple up or down? Yeah, the biggest differentiating factor is the industry. Retail shops tend to have a lower multiple than power generating facilities. Project based businesses tend to have a lower multiple than regularly you know, occurring long-term contracts like we, like we talked about. So it's not quite as cut and dry as, as you'd hope it to be. It's more art than science oftentimes. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if you have multiple buyers, especially those with strategic interest, buying over the same, uh, same company, that's going to really be the driver of value. That's going to be your alpha. And that's what we try to generate. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Now, how should buyers be preparing? I mean, you, you just don't come and say, hey, ready to sell. Like there's, I think it's diligent to, to start preparing to, to be sold before you even engage a, a broker. Absolutely. And then once you have engaged a broker, there's further preparation to be done there's, before getting out to market. Now, what are some of the things that you've seen or that can be done to putting their best foot forward? Yeah, the, the biggest thing is to have a, a plan for after you, know, you the business owner, are stepping away from the company. A lot of the times, the, the mistakes that we see the business owners making early on in the process is emphasizing their own importance to the company. That's not what a buyer wants to see. A buyer wants to hear that your company can run without you. If you're going to be leaving, and then you need to have a, a plan to have the company continue on without your influence. And so that's, that's I think, step one, is have a succession plan in place, some kind of concept at least, 
tell your management team, bring your management team to the meetings with buyers. That always adds uh, adds value on the multiples on, on any kind of valuation. Really interesting. Tell me more about that because I think that that could in- introduce a degree of risk into into the sales process. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that is oftentimes the conversation that we're having early on is, is how many people can we tell? How do we keep the, the lid on it? Don't want it to leak necessarily. But a lot of the times the messaging is really important. If, if people do hear at the company that, that a sale process has started, you're really trying to bring the company to the next level. I mm. mean... If, if you have a, a business owner who's uh, getting more advanced in age and, and people are going to be wondering about what the next step is anyway. So to have that clarified and laid out is, is not a negative. And to, even if, if it is a surprise, the fact that you're partnering with a private equity firm or, or a strategic otherwise is going to bring new opportunities. So... Yes, it is a difficult conversation. It is something that we oftentimes are are struggling to get the best mix yep. with, with our clients, but it definitely does add value when you have, again, a buyer, if you want to retire, the buyer is going to step in and say, well, who am I going to be working with? Is that person good? <laughs> are they able yeah. to run the company? They need to be able to answer those questions effectively or, or the valuation will suffer as a result. Okay. Long time, but Matt God, it was got to be a hundred episodes ago. We had a gentleman named Brent Holiday on who he advises on the sale of tech companies specifically. And his saying that just stuck with me was buyers are liars. And you know, I think that there's something to be said there. It's definitely it's definitely a, a rhetorical statement. It gets you know, gets you to go say, What do you what are you saying there? So from your experience, when I say that to you, what do you think about that? And, and what, is the, what are the lessons to be learned out of hearing that? Look, I mean, there's, there's an element of truth to it. I mean, the, there's certain tactics that buyers play, mm-hmm. especially for those business owners who are not represented. They are vulnerable to these tactics where you get bought in. You start spending a lot of money on advisory, on accountants, on legal, on whatever else you're spending money on. You're accruing this bill. And at some point, you're telling your people, you're, you're making an announcement internally. At that point, towards the end of the deal, you know, a week before close, a buyer then tries to flip the, the, the script and say, well, this is wrong and we need this remediated immediately or else we can't possibly close. And we do see that frequently. So we get around that. We get we get past that by a being being tough from the beginning, showing that we won't put up with with retrades for for things that are not fair. We we want to be open, transparent, and honest throughout the process. Part of it is is yes, we go to a wide net. We oftentimes are dealing with buyers who we don't know, but if a buyer that we do know who has been not a liar in the past has been true to their word. Then that's someone that we'll we'll tell our our clients and we'll advise them that these are are trustworthy people who are able and and likely to get the deal done as as described at at the onset. So it, it's it's a lot of different things, but being timeline driven, being focused on on dates, that's a big way that we go to get past and through these problems. It's never going to alleviate them all. There's always going to be some. We're dealing with some right now, as a matter of fact. So, but. Oftentimes, what we found is is the buyers can be very reasonable when when you say, "Look, we just want to work through these issues." You know, what, if there's something that's a requirement to close in your mind, uh, a problem that needs to be remediated, we want to we want to push that to a head and just get it done so that it, so that we can close out the transaction and and uh, everyone will be happy. And and a lot of buyers will hear that and say, "Oh, I'm going to win." Right. So we'll give you the wins as long as you are true to your word. And and, you know, we're not going to be dying on a hill over some legal language. Uh, most of the time we can advise our clients to, to understand where there are risks and where there's an appropriate level of, of risk to, to be satisfied and uh, and take the money, close the transaction. Yeah. Now, what about you speak of timeframes and dates being very date driven? What are the timeframes to sell a company and, and how, how does that change by, by valuation or by ultimate number on it? 
Well, one of our, our deals that closed this morning um, was 135 days from engagement to close. Wow. That's our second fastest of all time. Okay. We have a 150-day process that we generally try to go by. The average time is, is slightly longer than that. There are definitely delays that, that happen either pre-market, during market, under LOI, or otherwise. We try to minimize those. And, and so when, whenever we are negotiating an LOI, we'll always aim to, to keep it to 60, 45 to 60 days. That's how long it should take to confirm diligence. We always call it confirmatory due diligence. It's not due diligence looking for problems to extend the timeline. It's, it's due diligence to prove that what we've went out with our marketing materials is honest and true. Okay. You touched on something there. I want to, I want to dive into process again, get more granular on this. 150-day process, pre-market, at market, and then your, your closing process, ideally. So, so what are those? What are the steps there? Yeah. I mean, the, the first step is preparing the materials. And we actually start all of our clients with a two-day management meeting training process, getting mm. ready for the time that the buyers do come in and start asking you questions and drilling down. So part of that, we, we prepare a video. We call it a TED Talk. Okay. High level, five minutes overview. What is the business? How is it growing? What makes it unique? What, what's the alpha narrative that, that you have for your company? We create the SIM, as we talked about, the information memorandum with all of the financial information, any potential issues. We want to disclose, disclose, disclose. We don't want any surprises. So if you have a lawsuit or anything that's pending a complaint from a customer, anything like that, we throw it in there. Make sure that the buyers are aware of it ahead of time. And then we create the marketing video. So we'll go down to the factories or whatever else there is to show. And again, that really does get through a lot of the questions. People get a real taste for what the company is. From so that, that's the first, usually 50 days or so, getting ready. Then we'll go out to market. We'll, we'll start sending out that information. The teaser will go out, one-page teaser with very minimal information because we don't want information to leak. People will then sign a, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, to get this, uh, this information with all of the details in the company's name. That process takes 21 days from marketing to bids. Bids do. When the bids start rolling in, we'll, we'll throw them together. We'll speak to all of the bidders. We'll get a feeling for what they're looking at, not only in terms of value, but also in terms of how they'd fund it, what the structure would be like. You know, you might get a $10 million bid for your company, but it could be half cash at close, half seller note. Essentially, you'd be writing debt to the buyer, paid back in some form later on, or an earnout where you have to hit certain targets of EBITDA or otherwise in order to earn a certain amount of money. All of these types of things come out generally during the, the LOI process. So it usually takes another week or so, week or two to get the LOIs in, negotiate the LOIs, get it signed. And from that point, 45 to 60 days to close. Okay. What about building, building the market of interested buyers? And and building the tension in around that, I think that's a really important thing. Both from you know raising capital or going to sell a business, how do you get more than one or two buyers to the table? And then how do you communicate among them so they recognize that they're in competition? Yeah, I think we've done a good job over our thirty year history. Where people know we always run a, a robust auction process. We generally don't do uh, preempts. We will allow preempts once once the other bids are in if we know a, a buyer well then then yeah maybe maybe we'll have just one management meeting. sorry but can you expand on that preempt like a yeah. preemptive yeah i think it's common for other brokers other other bankers in the industry to say oh well i know the perfect buyer for your company let's just go to them directly and just deal with them that that puts the the seller in a position of, of weakness they don't have the leverage that we allow you to have Okay. You know, by, by understanding, again, what the market is saying the value of your company is worth, not just one particular buyer. Okay. That's number one. It's just the fact that the market already knows that's how we operate. We have a distribution of, I think, 150,000 companies, strategic, uh, financial, or otherwise. And we will send out email blasts uh, and and. Follow-up phone calls. Woodbridge International is our, our, our company's full name. We have a, an office in Cape Town, South Africa. 
where a lot of our uh, calling ambassadors work out of. And we will follow up all of our emails with a phone call. So we'll make sure that, that everyone who we think needs to see this is, is seeing it. Usually it's about seven to 10,000 different companies. So starting off by casting the wide net, right? That's mm. number one. We'll send out, we had a, one campaign that had 450 NDAs. Are you serious? Yeah, that was the most ever. So they're not all, they're not all like that. The average, the median is probably somewhere like 50 to 75. So those will be the people who then dive deep, come back, and then usually we'll get 10 to 20 bids is, is again, the median. We've had as many as 63, I want to say, on the high end. So people coming in, putting in their bid, we want to make sure that everyone who's putting in a bid at least has an opportunity to speak to one of our closers, get a feel for what's going on. And then the management meeting process. So who's going to actually have a chance to sit down with our client and talk to them, ask them a bunch of questions, usually an hour, hour and a half time slot. So we generally want to limit the amount of times that our, our clients have to go through that. It's, it's a difficult process that, that can be a little bit draining. So we'll generally choose three to, to six potential buyers to have those sit downs. Now that's where a lot of the networking and so on comes into play, where, where who we know and, and how we've done business with them in the past is certainly an important factor. Values that they're putting on their initial bids is an important factor. You know, I had a tough conversation with, with our fourth placed buyer. It's one campaign we have in market right now. And I told them, look, like we had two buyers who have billions of dollars of dry powder, according to PitchBook, who have management teams of portfolio companies that know our clients. They personally know each other. So yes, you're a very well-funded group. And yes, you have a strategic interest, but can, you also have a lower bid than them. They understand ultimately, okay, yeah, this one is, is maybe not going to be one that we win. And, you know, and even in the, those cases, I say, look, if you want to come back and, and put together a new bid with a higher valuation, we can have that conversation, but you're playing from behind at this point. Hmm. Interesting. It's, I'll be honest, I do not like getting into conversations which really drive into like a pitch for the guest, right? You're talking about Woodbridge. But what I'm taking from this is you have a very interesting, perhaps unique process in going out there and, and marketing companies where some other advisors and brokers might not have that. And so I'm taking something away from there. I do think that's really interesting and, and in a way to to build. Now, the tension piece, how much is emotion versus logic when, you, when you're selling a deal to potential buyers? No, it's, it's a really good point. You know, this business is one of emotion. Most of our companies, most of our clients are privately owned. Most are entrepreneurial companies where the, the founder is our client. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's second generation, sometimes third. But even so, it's the same, the same type of emotional connection that people, our clients have to their companies. These are their babies. These are their, their livelihoods. Their identities. Yeah, absolutely. So it is 100% emotion. These are the things that we're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. As we talked about before, I, I was in public equity world before. And yeah, you know, you might have Toyota be 2% of your portfolio, but there's no emotional connection to, to the Toyota stock you own. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. There's a totally different ballgame when it comes to how much it means to our clients. So it's not all about money. Money's usually the number one driving factor, but sometimes you'll have, have a, a, an auction where there are multiple different buyers with similar valuations. And our client will go with one who has a lower valuation, but more aligned with their view of how to grow the company going forward, more aligned with their view of how to keep employees on or yeah. motivated or otherwise. Yeah. But also, most importantly, who's going to actually have the money to do the deal that they're putting forth. Yeah, yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. That's, that's another factor. So the certainty to close, as we call it, that's the, something we try to emphasize from, uh, from our position as an advisor. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that there's huge emotion that comes to, to play that you have to manage among your clients. But I'm wondering about in the sales process and actually getting buyers to buy in. And, and the reason why I say this is because when raising capital, emotion trumps logic, especially with early stage, high risk deals. 
you're 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 selling a dream. You're selling a better future, and that's you know where I spent much of my career was in that world. So I always look and I say emotion trumps logic, but how does that apply in different areas? And when selling a business, even to professional buyers, I argue and and correct me if I'm wrong here, but when they come down and they're sitting down as a buyer with their management teams, they likely start their little presentation of why they should buy this company with, I like this company because they start with an emotional statement. And so I I bring this up because I think that it's something that not a lot of people think through and perhaps oversee is the value of factoring an emotional narrative in that then connects to logical proof and explanation of why it's, it's valued. So with my little preamble there, how does that fit? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is more of a factor, I think, from the seller side. But you're right. The buyers, too, also have a, uh, an emotional element to, to their narrative, their way of looking at, at a potential investment, a potential acquisition, especially when we're dealing with search funds or independent sponsors, those who are less institutional in, mm. in nature. Oftentimes, again, because we are in the lower middle market, we are dealing with companies of, of five you know, million dollars revenue, one million dollar EBITDA is our, our minimum threshold. And around those levels, you do see companies where, where our best buyers can be search funds or, or, again, sponsors who don't have their own capital, who have to go out and raise it, who are willing to put skin in the game, their own personal financial uh, backing. So mm. you get an FDA loan from the government, for instance, from the U.S. government, you have to put down money and you are personally guaranteeing that loan. So for those types of transactions in particular, you're going to see a lot of emotion from the buyers as well. Interesting. Yeah, of course. Okay. But even for a, uh, uh, an investor, and I think you see this even in the equity world, where, where people start to fall in love with their, with their thesis, you know, and oh, totally. yeah. you know, it's something that I think Warren Buffett and others will warn against, you know, you, you shouldn't be, be doing that. You should be leading with, with your head here, but yeah, you absolutely will see buyers who are, are have their heart in it. Uh, and that's frankly what we want to see. We're, we represent sellers 95% of the time. And so we're always looking for those buyers who, who will fall in love, who will go out of their way to make sure that, that, they win the auction and and that they close efficiently because they want it so bad. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I want to change gears here. I want to, I want to talk a bit about your experience in Asia. I guess before we do that, let's close off on talking the the selling process and uh, any final thoughts when it comes to management teams who are who are selling. You know, what should they keep in mind before entering a process? Yeah, I would say keep a flexible mind. Don't let your pre-judgments uh, cloud what we learn through the process. That's sort of the big high-level view. You know, and if you're, if you're at an earlier stage to get your numbers in, in check, get your thoughts in line before you come and try to sell your company. If you have a management team, again, as, as we talked about, all of these things in preparation are going to make for a higher multiple, a uh, higher valuation, and, and a smoother process. Excellent. Okay. Now, Switching gears, you spent like I think a decade overseas in Taiwan and in Japan, and I think they're just they're fascinating economies, they're fascinating cultures. This is out of just curiosity. Talk to me about that. What was that like? Yeah, I mean it's it's funny. I was in Japan. I landed in uh, 2010. I studied Japanese in uh, in college and university, so I I had a, a leg up there. But it's a very difficult language to really be effective in. And while I was sort of conversationally proficient, we're using it in the office is, is a whole other story. And in fact, in the equity world where, frankly, misunderstandings happen constantly all the time, regardless of language, can cost millions of dollars, right? A long mm-hmm. stroke of the key, you end up selling uh, Yamazaki baking instead of Yamazaki electric, you're in trouble. So it's, um, it's one of those things where it was it was a bit, a bit difficult to to utilize the language skills. But when I landed, it was 2010. The next year, 2011, was the earthquake and tsunami. At Goldman, we, we have the 48th floor of the the Mori Tower building in uh, in Roppongi. It's one of the tallest skyscrapers in Tokyo. We were swaying back and forth about five meters. It was like being on a boat, and the emergency hatches were opening and shutting, 
opening and slamming oh shut. Yeah, the TV screens were, were shaking all up. And the funny thing was, we're on the trading floor. The market's still open. I was looking around, and everyone was just on the phone doing their business. So I was like, I guess this is what I should do. I, I got to call my clients and tell them we're having an earthquake. And, uh, I, I short sold some real estate companies. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah. So, look, obviously, the, the harrowing images that showed up on, on screen afterwards from Tohoku, the Northeast, where they hit, got hit with the tsunami. That was a whole nother ball game. And then working during the times where the power plant was exploding. It was, it was melting down Tuesday, the following Tuesday, the Fukushima power plant uh, melted down. And there was this, this video of this helicopter dropping water on it, trying to cool it down. And all the water evaporated before it hit the building. Oh, my God. Yeah. We all looked at each other and were like, oh, that is not good. Yeah, Yeah, and uh, I I had a a client call in to sell some Nintendo, and I just completely forgot about it because I was in shock about what was happening with this this power plant. All the senior management went into a room, joked about the helicopters coming in and taking us away. It didn't end up happening. We were safe, ultimately. Tokyo is far enough away from Fukushima where we weren't directly impacted. But yeah, no, it was... uh, it was it was an interesting experience to say the least. But frankly, you know, for learning about markets, uh, you can't you can't really top that. I learned a ton in a short period of time. Talk to me about the Japanese market because, as I understand, that you know, it's it's they've got this inverted population triangle or however you say it, uh, pyramid. Um, they've got basically stagnant markets. What are the, the challenges they're facing there? And are we going to be facing that in North America? And how do you approach that? Yeah. Well, the biggest difference on a population perspective in North America versus Japan is the openness to immigration. And so while our birth rates are not all that different among second, third generation citizens, the immigrant population is much smaller in Japan. So I don't think that North America is likely to face the same type of situation. We'll have our own issues with that. But certainly what was always the the focus of markets while I was there, soon after the earthquake and tsunami, the election of former Prime Minister Abe, who came in with a policy of trying purposefully to stoke inflation and having this lost decade, really lost two or two and a half decades, where there was deflation Deflation is much worse for the economy, for for growth than inflation. It's much more difficult to fight because you can't really have sub-zero interest rates. We've seen how that's worked out. But Japan was the the place where all of this experimentation first happened. So when we started to see signs of inflation in the past couple of years, I I felt very prepared for that because I had been you know, looking at, at this and, and seeing the Japanese economy a, attempt to create inflation for so long. There's one simple way to do it is just take the helicopter money is what, what, what it's called, right? You just drop a bunch of cash over, over Tokyo and then, then there will be inflation. Just wire transfer a bunch of money into everyone's bank account. That would work. But doing it through the, the financial system sort of trickle down methodology, I think it has had an effect. But the other, the other factor I, I would focus on in the Japanese market has been the change in corporate culture, the focus on management, on running companies for the benefit of shareholders, not just for the management team's own benefit. Hmm. You know, that's a big cultural shift for... for Is it really? Tell, tell me more about that. How so? Like, yeah, I think, I think there was this view for, for many years, you know, especially in the, the high growth era in the 70s and 80s, where where the Japanese corporate C-suite, you know, would really take all the gains for, for their, their, themselves. They wouldn't, they never had the same kind of income gap that we see in, in North America, where CEOs make 100,000 times what, what the, the entry-level people make. But you do see all the benefits uh, otherwise, the lifestyle, expensing everything, and, and how they run the company, what their focus is, how their strategy for growth is oriented. It's why so many Japanese companies have these huge stockpiles of cash just sitting there on balance sheets because they want to have a lifestyle that's easy and, and enjoyable oftentimes, hmm. not generating gains for, for shareholders and not creating any growth. Hmm. So that shift in mindset, it was mandated from, from the government. There was a new corporate code 
changes in the way that the stock market actually treats different companies. Um, they created a new subsection of, of the Nikkei index, focus on, on good corporate governance, those that are following these policies. Sony, in particular, was, was leading, leading the way oftentimes in, in this type of thing. And uh, yeah, I actually, uh, funny story, I, I was, one of my colleagues was a, a Harvard grad, and I went with her to a, a Harvard alumni thing in, in that Maury Tower building. And we met the, this guy who had come in to Sony to come and, and change up the, the way that they operate and, and really focus in on, on the media business, divest a lot of the, uh, the, the fat and, and really focus in on the things that are making the money. And it was a, a very interesting conversation and early on in, in the history there of, of that turnaround. Yeah, that, that would be an incredible turnaround, especially with such different cultural values and approaches to, to business and just life in general that you know, coming in and turning around something like that would be uh, that's an interview in itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I had spoken more with him. I, I forgot his name now. Huh. Know, but it, was, it was definitely an interesting meeting. How about working in Taipei? And how different was that? And, and yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, you know, Taiwan has a lot of cultural similarities with Japan. Japan did own Taiwan as a part of their empire for, for 50 years. So I think that a lot of the, the remnants of that history still exists. It's sort of, it's different from the rest of, call it greater China. There, there is a sort of a more Japanese type reticence, politeness, so to speak, okay. in the culture. When I got there, it was 2019, so just before the pandemic hit. Now, what really struck me as interesting was the fact that SARS, when it, when it hit in the 90s, hit Taiwan hardest of anywhere in the world. I think 800 people died from SARS. They locked down a hospital, wouldn't let anyone in or out of this hospital for, for some time when in panic. And it left this mark, a psychological mark, when talk of COVID started in really the end of 19, early, early 2020. In January 2020, Taiwan moved to stop letting anyone in who has been in Wuhan. Hmm. Way before anyone was really talking about it as a serious issue. The vice president of Taiwan in 2020 was the leading epidemiologist in the country. So there was no COVID in Taiwan. I mean, there hmm. were seven cases in 2020. I think another... I don't know, 30 in 2021. It wasn't, yeah, it wasn't until I left in 22 that they started allowing it to spread. There was a two-week quarantine period to go in and out of the country. So I, I didn't leave the country, actually, in that, that whole period. It was, it was good living in, in Taiwan at that time compared to everywhere else in, in lockdown. I went on vacation in April of 2020 out to the uh, Hualien and looked, you know, sat by the beach. Nice. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going to ask you a controversial question. Is Taiwan its own country? If you're there, uh, you can clearly see it is not China. It is not communist controlled. The Taiwanese flags are everywhere. It is self-evident that they really? are independently governed and, and they go out of their way to prove it all the time as well. And when you're living there, you have to, you know, you have to go through extra stamps and, and all this stuff just so that you have things that say Taiwan on it. But it's, it has cultural links to no doubt about it. Economic links are very strong, very important, but it, it is, it has never been governed by the, the CCP. Mm. Yeah. My God. I, I remember when Trump came out and, and recognized them as their own independent country or something like this. And there's just all this, you know, uproar and all this kind of thing. And I mean, that's a, uh, call it a political gaffe or, or intentional it's a poke however you want to see it. It's just, I, I find it a fascinating situation. Yeah, it's, it's this funny diplomatic word game that, that's being played constantly. Yeah. The U.S. Embassy is the American Institute of Taiwan, for instance. It's just, it's just the labels that you put on things that make it not... To play the game. Out. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Now, how about dealing with Japanese or Taiwanese business people as, as the cultural nuances there? What were some of the things you learned? Like, for example, I did a fair bit of work in India and, and you had to kind of learn how to navigate, you know, the, pardon my French, but the fuckery of that, that scenario, right? And what about Taiwan and Japan? How, you know, what are the things there that, that, are, that are interesting? Yeah, I mean, my role at Goldman was 
deal the Taiwanese and Japanese stocks to foreign investors. So my clients were all, all outside of, of the country, generally speaking, if not you know, foreigners within the country. So my business dealings were more with colleagues when it comes to, to locals, the local population. So in Japan, I, because I had studied it, it, the language in school, I had a bit of, of background. I was able to adjust more, more easily, I would say. It's certainly, there's a lot of rules. Japan loves rules. They love order. They don't like surprises. They want to know what's coming. No surprise birthdays. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, generally. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Interesting. You know, the, trains, the trains run on time. And they, they really, if it says it's going to be there at 7.03, it's 7.03. That's, that's the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if, if the train is running even just a couple of minutes late, they will hand out little tickets so that, that proves that you were on a train that was late in case anyone asks. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, I think huh. for, for the business culture, you have also a, a reticence to change. There's this view that Japan is very technologically uh, advanced, and, and maybe that's true in robotics to some degree. But we would have clients uh, on the domestic side, my colleagues would deal with, who would sending their stock orders in on fax, send us a fax to go execute their orders. And it's funny because our, our internet link to, to clients is called Fix. So we would have a joke. We'd say, oh, they're sending their order on fix? No, it's on fax. Of course. <laughs> no kidding. Eh? And it just, that's the rule. That's the way it's done. Yeah. Why do you keep doing it this way? Because that's how it's done. Why do you think cultures like that in Japan? Again, I think it's because it's comfortable. It's, it, it feels right. And so why change what's not broken? But there's, there's got to be something underlying that. What culturally is there that... that Keeps them well, there's, there's also the concept of the you know the the nail that stands out gets hammered down. Mm. Uh, if there's the old guy who's been running the company for a hundred years, then he's got the authority. No one else wants it, you know, and and so mm. going on that momentum without without any outside force acting upon it. Otherwise, I mean, you you look at Japanese history, the shogunate and the the period of of keeping the the foreigners out. Um, yes, was very stable and and very high growth even for, for Japan over that, that period of time. So mm. if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I think that's, that's sort of the underlying motto. When I think about um, corporate cultures and, and the ability for, for executives to move up and climb the ladder and, and become, if we all come out of business school and some take leaps and bounds up to, to the C-suite and to the CEO spot, I think about that and, and have often thought about them as corporate athletes of sorts. But that's, to me, a very a view of, of North American business. And you think about in Japan, how does somebody do that there and actually rise up and, and move through the corporate ladder without standing out? Again, another conversation for later, but it's, it's a fascinating culture, very different from ours and some, some interesting experience you've had. Yeah, I mean, I I do have my my brother-in-law is is at a, a Japanese bank. He does quite well there. He's in the HR department now, and it's actually it's it's a funny quirk of Japanese finance companies that the HR departments are the powerhouse. I mean, that's where the the up and comers will be transferred into. No kidding, because corporate culture. There's nothing more important than the corporate culture. That's that's the what the company runs on. That's the lifeblood. So. If you're impacting that, and he's in charge of recruiting now, so he's very much running uh, that corporate culture and, and having that impact. That's that's really that's the way forward. Wow, interesting. Whereas, like you know, I think if you you think about an HR department in in North America or you know some of our banks here, it's just an annoyance for getting in ways. <laughs> you know, you know who cares if I if I made him cry? We didn't get the deal done, right? Like. Okay. So, oh, wow, fascinating. We've already ripped through close to an hour. So a couple more questions for you. I'm curious about what do you read? What kind of things, uh, what do you consume, podcasts, interesting media that you that fills your mind? Well, I have two young kids at home. So I was asked, what, what book am I reading right now? And my answer is The Hungry, Hungry Caterpillar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. My, my youngest really loves that one. But actually, we have it in Japanese too. So that's good. Nice. <laughs> My wife's Japanese, so we have uh, both languages for that, that book. But no, I, I'm really interested in Chris Voss. Never oh, nice. the difference, uh, negotiating strategies. 
the Black Swan Group, everything that I can get my hands on from from that world, I've been consuming a ton of lately. Oh, that's great. Yeah, he's he's done some great work. And in fact, Mark Raffin, who's a really good friend of mine, uh, is in the negotiation world and has got a podcast. He's the one who got me to start this podcast. And wow. it's just been, my only regret is not having started this way sooner. But that aside, him and Chris Voss did, did some good work together. And that's how I learned about Chris Voss. So yeah, he he's amazing. Great stories, all of that. Never split the difference, but I think was his real claim to fame there. Oh, good stuff. And now final thoughts for, for the audience, for anybody who's going into to a process. I want to bring it back when we think about selling a business because it's it's such a pivotal time in, in, a, in an entrepreneur's life. Any final things you'd like to leave with with entrepreneurs who are approaching that position and hopefully not in it going, what have I done? Yeah. Yeah. Again, you know, it's it's one of the things we have a, a series of books that we've been publishing since I want to say 2017. One of them was called, you know, how to exit your business with no regrets. When you go to the, the full market and you have a process where, where you're getting as many potential bids as possible, that's the market speaking. That's how you know that you found the, the right value for your company. And people who try to time the market, you know, I had uh, a client in, uh, in the equity world, a British guy who, uh, was, was just an old timer, had been doing it for decades. And you did put together buyers and sellers in the equity world. You find a very similar way, but a much smaller scale. And you call that a, a block cross or a block trade. And when you put together these block trades, the market's moving. The price is going to change from the time that you've engaged to the time that you actually execute. And on one time, I remember it went up 10 points or whatever, fairly substantial amount. And I was like, James, you know, should we keep this on? He said, Oh, mate, you win some, you lose some. In the end, it'll all work out. And sure enough, by the end of the day, the stock had plummeted back to earth. I mean, it went completely 180 degrees down the other way. And he looked like a genius. At Mm -hmm. the moment, a lot of other traders would have been freaking out, saying, I can't believe I got stuck in this trade. What am I doing? You can't let the the small blips in, in the market determine your thinking. If you're reaching out to us to try and find buyers for your business, to go with the process. And again, keeping that open mind, understanding where things are, that's going to be the key to, to success and to, to being able to move on and experience your goals post-sale. The point I took from your story there is not in timing the market and being one to play very long-term and long-term thinking. And you know, don't sell your business because you think the time is hot sell it because it fits what you are doing in, in your long-term plan and program of, of who you are. That's exactly right, Corey. Yeah. Fascinating. Jacob, so glad we met. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.